This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors, the show that talks all things outdoors in Paul Bunyan Country, or as we like to call it, paradise. show today on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Later on in the show, we're going to hear from Victoria Simons, a student at Bemidji State University, and her professor, Dr. Brian Hiller. They are studying bluebirds in Paul Bunyan Country. But first, there's a lot of fishing going on. The lakes are open. A lot of people are going for panfish while they wait for walleyes. But there's another season that just opened this past weekend, and you don't even need a boat for that one. It's stream trout season, and our resident stream trout expert is with us today. We're talking with Tony Standera. He is a fishery specialist out of the Bemidji Area Fisheries Office. Tony is our guy we seem to talk to all the time when we want to talk about trout, and I, I really did want to talk about trout, Tony, because I saw that the stream trout season is now open. And, you know, a lot of us are talking about going for suckers, going for panfish while we wait for the walleye opener. Um, but here's stream trout just waiting for us, too. Yes, Kevin. Hi, it's great to be back on the show. Um, our stream trout opener uh, occurred this last weekend on Saturday, April 17th, and it's kind of been a, a long, slow spring up here. We thought we were going to have an early spring a few weeks ago, but it's kind of back more into a normal time frame, and there certainly are a lot of people that are, are ready to get out and do some fishing. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Saturday, the 17th, the day of the opener, I heard some reports of uh, quite a few people out and about on our area streams. Um, it's kind of a continuation of what we've seen over the past year during the, the pandemic here in the state of Minnesota. Our, our interest in fishing and participation in a, a lot of other outdoor activities has really increased. And we're seeing that in our license sales in particular. Um, and our trout stamps sales are just phenomenal. Um, year over year for the for the past two years we've seen uh, a 20 percent increase in the number of trout stamp sales so that certainly suggests that people are really getting out and using the the resources Um, fishing is a good activity it gets people outdoors it allows them to be safely distanced and uh, allows families to spend time together you know a lot of kids weren't in school on a regular basis and uh so yeah. that's what we've seen is just a lot of participation in fishing. And, and that's great news, I think, all the way around. And one of the things that I find really attractive about uh, trout fishing in this area, uh, specifically when it comes to stream trout, is, you know, there's a, in the past, um, it, it's tough for a lot of people. Now, not everybody can own a boat. Not everybody can get out on the water on a lake. And stream trout is an activity that allows you to enjoy fishing at it, at some of its finest, without having to have a boat. Absolutely, you know, um, our our trout stream resources. Um, a lot of them are located in fairly remote areas, um, really scenic, and people not only enjoy getting out there and, and wetting a line, but just kind of being out in that environment in general. Um, it's a, a really good way to spend the day. Um, Trout fishing is a great activity to get young people involved in. It doesn't have to be really technical. You don't need a lot of, you know, fly fishing gear. Um, Basic trout fishing doesn't require a lot of fancy equipment or a lot of experience. It doesn't, and and again, it just allows. All you have to do is get down uh, along the shore or bring some waders and and get in there and and do some casting. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of my favorite ways to fish. 
So I'm sure there's native trout to this area, but I know there's been a lot of stocking over the years. Tell us a little bit about that. Yep, certainly. So um, we have a couple of native species of trout that are native to this state of Minnesota, and one is, of course, the lake trout. Um, Lake trout are primarily native to uh, Lake Superior and the northeast region of the state where we have a lot of uh, cold, deep lakes that have the right conditions to... um, to support those fish populations. Um, our native brook trout, which is the other species that we consider to be native to the state of Minnesota, um, seem to be native to more of the southeast portion of the state, the driftless area. Since then, we have expanded the distribution of brook trout as well as brown and rainbow trout, which are two non-native species that we have introduced You know, over the course of the last century of fisheries management, um, not just in the state of Minnesota, but nationally, um, you know, trout trout hatcheries and trout stocking um, has been a very, very popular fisheries management. So in about the last 100 years or so, we have expanded the, the distribution of, of these fish um, due, due mainly to their popularity, to, to anglers. Um, they're fairly easy to culture. And uh, we've got a pretty good handle on that. And we have an extensive cold water hatchery system here in the state of Minnesota. Um, Much of our hatchery infrastructure is located in the southeast, but we do have some cold water hatcheries um, in other parts of the state. We have one up here near Remmer, Minnesota called Spire Valley Hatchery, and that's currently a source for some of our rainbow trout stocking. And, of course, we have a a pretty significant... um, trout and salmon stocking program on the Great Lakes and the Minnesota waters of Lake Superior. Is there a um, some characteristics of the type of streams and, and what you need in the stream for it to be conducive to trout management? Yes. So trout, um, as a cold water species, have some pretty specific environmental conditions that they need to survive and probably the most important one is good cold clean water so the streams that we have in the state that are able to support trout populations have a lot of groundwater in inputs so they have um, a lot of spring water that upwells through the bottom of the stream bed or comes in through um, spring seeps and ends up you know, providing the the cold water conditions that these trout need to survive. Um, For example, species like brook trout need to have water temperature that stays below 60 degrees Fahrenheit pretty much year-round. Rainbow trout are a little more tolerant of warmer temperatures, but they still do best in streams that have temperatures that do not exceed 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So... If you compare those to some of our warm water species of fish, uh, most of our warm water species of fish have no no problem tolerating, you know, water temperatures in excess of 70 degrees. But to trout, that can be lethal. So um, cold water is the most important thing that we need for trout habitat. Another thing that provides good trout habitat is nice, gravelly, clean substrates in the bottom of the stream. Um, that provide a home for aquatic invertebrate insects, which are the basis of the food chain in many of these streams and very important, you know, part of the trout's diet. 
Um, so, so streams that provide these conditions tend to be in, in watersheds, you know, in landscapes that have not very much human disturbance, not a lot of um, agricultural activity, not a lot of urban development, but watersheds that are primarily intact um, and are not showing signs of, you know, excessive soil erosion, which is something that tends to happen in, in watersheds that are more um, developed and have more human impact. So nice, good, clean substrates, um, a good insect community that's able to live in the stream, and good cold water. And I know that, uh, you know, in here in the, not only the Bemidji area, but also in the Park Rapids area, there's, a, there's, a, there's miles and miles and miles of streams available for trout fishing. Absolutely. Um, we, we, of course, as a state, are blessed with, with so many great water resources, um, not only the land of 10,000 lakes, but we have thousands and thousands of miles of uh, warm water as well as cold water stream resources. Um, it can be kind of overwhelming, but recently we've done some upgrades to our DNR website, specifically directed at trout fishermen. Um, so these new web pages offer a really convenient place to not only find um, maps of these streams, but additional information on the characteristics of the streams and how they are to fish. So that's all been placed in kind of one handy site on the Minnesota DNR homepage for folks to get at. So I'd like to draw people's attention to that. Um, if you go to the DNR homepage, which is www.dnr.state.mn.us, You'll see a, a menu bar on the left-hand side of the page, and um, there you'll find a tab that's called Fishing. Um, you can click on that Fishing page, and it'll take you to another web page, and it, scroll down a little ways on that, and you'll see a tab that says Trout Fishing in Minnesota. And if you go into that web page, you'll see that we have all our trout fishing information organized by region in the state, uh, Northwest, northeast, southeast Minnesota, and also the central and metropolitan areas of the state. So um, start there. Go ahead and click on one of those areas you're interested in finding information in, and it'll take you to a list of all the trout streams and stocked stream trout lakes in those particular regions um, with, with really good maps available. So that's something that um, should make finding these resources and, um, you know, accessing them a lot easier for folks. For sure. And, and you know, uh, we were talking off the air that, uh, you know, we've got a good listenership now in the Brainerd area. And, of course, with podcasts, who knows who's listening where. But basically, in the entire state of Minnesota, uh, there's, there's a lot of stream trout opportunities, and this website will help us get there. Absolutely. Um, I, I recommend folks take a look at it. Um, I think it's it's an improvement over our already excellent um, DNR webpage. Fishery specialist out of the Bemidji Area Fisheries Office, Tony Standera, talking trout with us. we got a lot more to cover with Tony later on. But up next, we're going to shift the topic to birds and a study Bemidji State University's Wildlife Biology Program is conducting. This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. 
welcome back to Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. The topic is now birds, in particular bluebirds and those who use bluebird houses. Brian Hiller, a professor of wildlife biology at Bemidji State University, and one of his students, Victoria Simons, who's been involved in a study of, of bluebirds in the area, are joining me today. Thank you both for being here today. Certainly. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So, Brian, I'm going to start with you because you were telling me uh, when we talked about this, I think it was last week or the week before, um, that this has been a, something that's been going on for a while and really got started by a, com- a community member who really loved birds, and that was Jim Humanick. Tell us a little bit about uh, what, what's developed here. So I've been involved in the project. I was actually looking back through my notes today, and I, I've been involved in the project since at least 2016, um, when we started, uh, you know, I, I met Jim Humanick uh, through my work with Purple Martins along Lake Bemidji. He happens to have a Purple Martin house, and as I was driving around the lake looking for other Martin houses, aside from the ones at Cameron Park, I came across this one up the north end of the lake. Uh, and so I drove around, figured out who it was, and, and met, ended up meeting him. And he asked if I was interested in bluebirds, and I was like, well, it's a bird, so yeah, I'm interested <laughs> Uh, you know, it's got feathers. I'm interested in it. And so we ended up talking about, you know, what, you know, how he got involved. And, and he's been involved with uh, the Bluebird Recovery Program in Minnesota for quite a number of years. He's the Beltrami County uh, coordinator for, you know, basically for nest monitoring. Um, and basically in, in his uh, spare time in retirement, he spends a good portion of it making cedar bluebird boxes. Um, so if you sort of drive around Bemidji, you see these little boxes in pairs on, on poles. They're probably put up by Jim. Um, and so when he, you know, when we started talking in 2016, he said, well, would you be interested in monitoring? And I said, sure, I'd love to get involved. And, you know, it's something that I can do for fun. It's, you know, I can bring my kids out and, and I can go check them out. You know, I'm at the baseball fields most days anyway, and there's a pair over there. Um, so we, we sort of kept track of it from there. And, you know, as we as we sort of kept you know, talking more and more, um, you know, I thought, well, this is kind of a cool, we want to be able to get some real cool research out of this. Let's, let's start really keeping track of, you know, a larger number of boxes because he puts out, I mean, dozens and dozens of these things. Um, yeah, it's not probably feasible for me to track every single one of them around here. There are that many. Um, but I, you know, I sort of took a subset of them. We track between 50 and 60 bluebird houses every year. Um, and, and really what we do is we start off in the spring, we make sure they're all cleaned out and ready to go. And then, um, you know, throughout the, you know, throughout the nesting period, we go out, we open up the box, we see who's in there, we identify, you know, what species is using it. And then once we know what's using it, we sort of go back every week and keep track of, you know, what's happening. So when did they start the nest? When did they, you know, start their first clutch? When did they lay their first egg? When did they lay their last egg? How many eggs did they lay total? That kind of stuff. Um, and, and just trying to figure out, you know, what species are, are actually nesting in these boxes. So that's sort of how it started, and, and we've just sort of been rolling on since then. Victoria, how long have you been working on the project? I just got involved on in the project last summer. I was looking to get some experience in the field, and Dr. Hiller had the position open, so I was lucky enough to be able to help him with that. You uh, did a presentation at Bemidji's uh, Student Achievement uh, Conference. Um, what were you presenting? I was presenting the results that we got from our last summer of research. We looked at the, reprodu- the reproductive success in eastern bluebirds and the tree swallows that were using those boxes. What did we find? Um, well, we had 
about 46 out of the 60 boxes were inhabited. Um, about half of them were by tree swallows and 46% by bluebirds. We had a few black-capped chickadees and a white-breasted nuthatch in a couple of the boxes. But the bluebirds, we got a 73% success rate and an 81% success rate for the tree swallows. So that was measuring how many of their eggs hatched out of the total number that they laid. Okay. Um, was that a good number? Was that a concerning number? It's a pretty decent number. Um, it's a little bit lower than some of the national averages that have been seen, but that might have something to do with just the northerly latitude of Bemidji compared to the rest of their breeding areas. Brian, Restoration Project is what you mentioned earlier. Has there been a concern about the vo- the volume of bluebirds in our area? Uh, it's it's actually a, more of a national issue, and and it, the same thing goes for the tree swallows, although they're not really the target species for this nest box program per se. That's not really what we're trying to accomplish, but um, they're actually, I think it's actually a really valuable program from that standpoint. Uh, you know, tree swallows are, are a member of the sort of aerial insectivores. They, they catch all their food on the wing. Um, and the overall sort of group of aerial insectivores, which includes purple martins and chimney swifts and all the others, um, they've all been sort of declining, um, you know, over time. And so we sort of worry about that. And the same thing goes for bluebirds. There was some concern about their population, you know, whether or not their population was going up or down. And just sort of looking at their nest box numbers over over the last few years, you know, you can see that they've seemed like they've stabilized a bit. But, you know, back in the in the sort of mid to early um, 90s they is when they really started to um, sort of recover a bit. Um, and as to you know why their why their numbers were going down, I mean, there's you know any number of possible reasons for that, um, you know, including you know increased use of pesticides and and all kinds of other stuff. I mean, these are primarily a farmland bird; they live in open spaces and, and nest along edges. So you know, changes in landscape use, um, habitat you know alterations by humans in farmland situations, um, just all these sort of changes in how people use the landscape are, are important drivers of of whether or not this population is going to persist. So, Victoria, what are some of the reasons why uh, a birdhouse would not be used by birds? It might just be like the area that it's in, if the bird doesn't happen to find it out there. Um, otherwise, if the box hasn't been cleaned out, they might not use that box. Part of it's just chance, too. Like I said, we did have 46 out of the 60 boxes um, inhabited, so it was a pretty decent number to see. For, uh, and, and either one of you can take this one, uh, for an average guy like me that loves birds and, you know, and does have some woods around me, um, what should I be doing to to help maybe the population or, or help bring some birds into my neck of the woods? Um, that's a good question. You know, I think one of the things that at least, you know, like Victoria is talking about, you know, with this particular study, we're we're interested in, in a bunch of things, you know, we're interested in what, how many of the boxes get used because that's that can be, you know, an indicator of whether or not there's an actual need, right? So if you put out say 100 boxes and only 20 of those boxes get used, well, then maybe nesting locations are not really the limiting factor for whatever population you're interested in. In this case, we're talking about, you know, 75% of the boxes or more are actually being used, um, you know, and and that says, well, you know, maybe maybe there is, in fact, a need. You know, of those boxes that don't, don't get used, one of the things that we're going to sort of look at going forward is which ones. Are they 
you know, because we put them out in pairs or Jim puts them out in pairs and we sort of replicate that whenever we put them out ourselves. So if they're using one of the pair, is the other of the pair not being used? Are the, you know, the individuals that are using one box, you know, basically filling the other one with stuff to keep something else from using it? You know, there's been a long, um, there's been a long, I guess, understanding that the reason that we, you know, bluebirds and, and tree swallows both are able to use them is because they don't really feed in the same way. Bluebirds tend to be sort of attack, they attack stuff down toward the ground. Whereas, again, the, the swallows are aerial insectivores. They catch everything on the wing, so they don't really compete with each other. Um, and so they're, they're, they're more willing to tolerate one another being close in, in nests right next to each other, whereas you won't get two tree swallows, you won't get two bluebirds because they're too similar. Um, okay. And so, you know, one of the things that I would suggest to people if they're, if they're going to put out a box, um, first of all, they don't need to have any sort of perch on it. So sometimes you'll buy ones that have, like a little stick or some sort of a perch on there. Um, any birds that feed in or, or that nest in holes like that, they don't need uh, they don't need the perch. The things that will use the perch are the things we don't really want, like English house sparrows or starlings. Um, so that's an important starter: is you know make sure that you you have a box that's appropriate for what you're trying to get, and then you know put it in a spot where you know they're most likely to use it. I mean, I've had you know birds even when I lived in cities nest in in boxes um, so you can get them nesting in a lot of a lot of different spots you might not get bluebirds but you might get a bunch of different stuff victoria um for those of us who again like having birds in their yard and you know put the big feeders out because we want to watch them in action what kind of food really should we be using i mean there's a there's a million different seed var- varieties they love to sell us uh what what are the ones we really should have i mean i guess what you use depends on what you want to attract. So if you want um, birds like bluebirds, you know, they are insectivores, so they're going to be looking for that type of food. Whereas if you're putting seed out there, you're going to get a lot of different types of birds. Um, Like finches will eat one type of seed compared to something else. So it really depends on the species you're looking for, I think. Okay. Uh, And again, for for either of you, um, you know, obviously as a human um, I love nature, and as a human, the sheer beauty of birds and animals and trees and all of that uh, brings joy to me. Uh, but what is the practical needs uh, of our area? What what do birds bring on a practical necessity basis? Just you want to take that one, Victoria? <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's a lot of value to having wildlife around, and not only you know is it just they're cool to see and it's fun to watch them in our yards but um the the role that they play in the ecosystem on a larger scale is really important how they fit into the habitat and then other predators their prey you know everything kind of is all connected so it's important to have them in an appropriate balance i think brian is there any particular birds that have been native to our area that are in kind of serious problem trouble right now thank you Again, you know, any of the aerial insectivores, the chimney swifts have been, you know, their populations are um, are certainly in decline, um, and and a lot of that has to do with they're adapting to using chimneys. Um, you know, they've obviously adapted to human chimneys pretty well, and now we've changed our our building codes so that a lot of those chimneys are no longer suitable habitat. We've we've now changed so that we either have to have them 
they're outright capped, or sometimes they have to be lined with a clay liner and capped. Whereas, you know, chimney swifts require the sort of the old brick and mortar style. Um, you know, so th- that that's you know, again, human changes to the the landscape um, end up causing you know unintended consequences. Um, you know, and other things that that feed in the air, tree swallows, um, certainly purple martins. Uh, we're doing very well with purple martins around here. Again, we seem to be doing pretty well with tree swallows and bluebirds around here. Um, and there are, uh, during the summertime around Bemidji, you can certainly see chimney swifts overhead um, in pretty good numbers. So I think we've got a couple of older, you know, sort of large chimneys that seem to be hosting them, either in their migration or, or sort of during during the summer for their, uh, you know, for their nesting period. But, you know, those are the species that right now I think, you know, most, you know, most people are sort of most concerned about uh, about the area insectivores. Victoria, how did you get involved in uh, birds and, and wildlife biology? Um, I guess I grew up um, in a family who was really into the outdoors, so we would be camping a lot with my grandparents, or uh, eventually when I got older, I'd go hiking or hunting and fishing with some of my uncles and my dad, and um, I was always fascinated by everything I saw, especially the birds. So I knew I wanted to go into wildlife biology, and I ended up at Bemidji State University because I heard it was a great program. Yeah, like I said, I was lucky enough to get involved in this project, and it's been really fun. So, so is it a great program? It is a great program. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew you'd say that, Brian. I'm biased. <laughs> but you know, in all honesty, it's a great program because we keep getting students like Victoria. <laughs> You know, we yeah. get students that are that are bright, that are dedicated, that are really curious and really interested, and really willing to get out there and do this stuff, like do the work. They love the fact that we get to go outside and do this stuff, and and they're willing to do it, and they do it without complaint, and they're always eager. Anytime there's something going on, I mean, we actually have to put out more bluebird boxes in the next week or so, and I keep, you know, I'm trying to figure out when the weather's going to be warm enough again for us to go and do it. But I keep getting emails, and every time I have a class, you know, we're, we're Zooming our classes right now, and every time I have a class, someone pipes up and says, when are we going to do the bluebird boxes? You know, when are we going to go do this? When can we go do this? You know, the students are eager. You know, they're taking advantage of the opportunities that, you know, that being in Bemidji provides. Um, and like I said, the program is really just in its growth phase. I mean, we're, we're really starting to ramp up, and it's thanks to students like Victoria that, that we keep getting more good students like that. You know, they just help build our reputation. Victoria, are you uh, are you a senior this year? Yes, this is my senior year. So what's next for Victoria Simons? Well, this summer I'm working on a research project at Itasca State Park for Dr. Canuti from the University of Connecticut. And I'll actually be working again with bluebirds and tree swallows. Um, it'll be a little bit more involved with um, nest parasitism and supplemental feeding and how those kind of interact with each other but that'll be what I'm doing this summer. What's what's your long-term goal? My long-term goal is to be a wildlife biologist and do more of this kind of research um, on wildlife, hopefully with an emphasis on avian ecology. Do you uh, do you have an idea of where you want to be, or are you just going to go where, where the jobs are? I'm just going where the jobs are. You know, wherever I find an opportunity that I like, that's where I'm going to be. Brian, where are the uh, where are the growth opportunities in wildlife biology right now? Uh, that's a good question. You know, right now the pandemic's really uh, taken you know certain knocked everyone for a bit of a loop here. You know, a lot of the the restrictions on going out and doing field work have have hampered some stuff. Um, 
but I think, you know, again, you know, one of the things that, that we're, I'm always interested in is, you know, from a, from a professor standpoint is, okay, how do I get students jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think some of the stuff that we're seeing at the, at the federal and the state level where we're, we're putting money into, um, you know, into fields that are going to result in jobs, like we're increasing the number of internships that are paid. You know, those are the kind of things that are always important barriers to, you know, to entering the field. Well, how do I, how do I get a job, but still like survive and pay my student loans and make my car payments and have enough food to eat? Um, so I think that both federal agencies are doing this. We've got several of our students that are going off to work in national parks or uh, work for federal agencies this summer. Um, you know, so some of those int- entry level programs where it it, re- it requires either state or federal input. But we also get some that are going to work for, you know, nonprofits. They're going to work for a nature conservancy or, or stuff like that. Um, and some of them are going to end up going into research where they're going to do field, field work for the summer and, and help collect data for a master's student or a PhD student. Uh, Victoria, you've been getting grades all through your college and high school career, and now I'm going to give you the opportunity to give a grade. Um, what would you give uh, a, as a grade if you had to do an A through F on the health of uh, of birds in northern Minnesota from what you've seen? Um, I guess I've, I have limited experience um, with birds on the wider scope, so it's hard for me to really say or really give an accurate grade Um but, I mean, whenever I go out to state parks or go for hikes, I'm seeing a lot of different species, which is good. Um, so I think I would give it an A, but, again, you know, I'm not sure that I'm qualified to do that. Brian, do you, do you concur? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, you know, Bemidji's done a really nice job overall. You know, we've had, you know, we became, uh, you know, an Audubon bird city several years ago. Uh, we hosted Purple Martin Fest a few years ago. Um, the birds, bees, and butterflies group within the city, you know, is committed to increasing pollinator habitat and, you know, sort of lakeside and roadside brush habitat. Um, so I think Bemidji overall does a really nice job. You know, there's always room for improvement, and there's always, you know, room to do new things. And, and like I said, this research project is is one way for us to sort of, you know, keep a finger on the pulse. You know, if we see, you know, over the long term, this average of 76% of the boxes being used go up or down, or we see the fledging rate change go up and down. That's sort of how we keep track of that stuff, you know, is to is to go out and do the research. But I think Bemidji overall does a really nice job. I mean, it it is a beautiful place to be a bird, um, and and there's a lot of bird friendly, um, you know, policies that, that the city's initiated, and, and I think the state park being nearby, you know, Bemidji State and all the different parks being nearby. Um, it really does add to the to the very bird flavored atmosphere around here. <laughs> All right. All right. Brian Hiller uh, is a professor of wildlife biology at Bemidji State University. Victoria Simons, a uh, student of wildlife biology at Bemidji State University, uh, talking birds in the area. And uh, Brian, Victoria, thank you both for being here. Victoria, best of luck on your summer project and going forth. Thank you. Well, thanks a lot, Kev. Get ready. The the migration is underway, so keep your eyes out for the birds. Up next on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors, we check back in with fisheries specialist Tony Scandera and continue talking trout. This time we'll take a look at some of the trout lakes in Paul Bunyan Country.
Welcome back to Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. If you want to go fishing, there are certainly fish you can catch. Panfish are open for season right now. Suckers, those types of things. But also stream trout. Stream trout season started last weekend. Tony Standera, fishery specialist out of the Bemidji Area Office, has been talking about it with us. But in addition to trout streams, we also have a lot of trout lakes. Now, we've got a number of, you know, designated trout lakes in our area as well, which we've talked about over the years. And again, it's got to be a cold water. And a lot of times it usually has to be quite deep. Is there a difference in the type of trout we're going to find in those lakes than there, than there are in the streams? Well, um, not, not too much of a difference by species. Um, our, our stream trout lakes are stocked with stream trout, so you'll still have um, lakes that have all three of our species brook trout, rainbow trout, and brown trout stocked. We have some lakes in the northeast region of the state that are stocked with splake, which is a cross between a brook trout and a lake trout. Um, so that's kind of a unique fishing opportunity that's popular up there. Um, but we, we have opportunities for stream trout fishing in lakes for all three of our trout species. Okay. Um, so if you're going to fish on the lakes, though, that, that season is not open yet. No, you're correct, Kevin. Um, while our stream trout season opened here on April 17th, the season for stream trout and lakes opens with our walleye fishing opener, which this year happens to be May 15th. Okay. Um, and when you're stream trout fishing, is this a keep, keep season or is this a catch and release season right now? Well, on, on streams that are um, under the statewide regulations, anglers are allowed to keep five fish daily with one fish over 16 inches allowed in possession in that daily limit. And you would need to have a standard fishing license and a trout stamp for the stream trout season as well, right? That's correct, Kevin. Um, the state of Minnesota does require you to have uh, an annual fishing license, whether resident or non-resident as well as a $10 trout stamp, which is good for the year, if you are going to fish on designated trout waters. So for our trout streams, which are designated, that would require a trout stamp to, to even catch and release fish. Tony, we talked to a, a number of guys last year in the DNR about, uh, you know, how frustrating it was to, to not be able to do the things you normally do, and kind of, uh, it, it didn't appear to have a huge long-term impact, they didn't think, but... You you were in the same boat. You were kind of stuck inside. You weren't able to do what you normally do. Do you see any long-term impacts on trout populations because of that? You know, um, one thing that was prioritized by our agency at the beginning of the pandemic response was the cold water hatchery system. Um, due to the, you know, the investment we have in the infrastructure of those hatcheries, as well as the brood stock that are maintained to produce all the trout eggs, that end up, you know, mm -hmm. we end up rearing all our trout, stock trout from. So that was designated as a high priority, and as a result of that, um, there was no um, disruption in our in our cold water hatchery production at all last year. So fortunately, we won't see any interruption or disruption in stockings, Dude. and we were able to complete all of our stockings in 2020, despite the pandemic work restrictions that we were under. So that's good news. One of the things you didn't get to do, and I think that's maybe more fun than anything, was get to work with those uh, those fourth graders that uh, that you always get to work with. And <laughs> yeah, tell that, 
Yep. Is that um, is that going to be back? You know that that program is ongoing. It's it's just really changed a lot because I've had to participate in it uh, kind of remotely. You know, <laughs> I'm not able to go into the classroom, but we were able to complete the trout in the classroom project here in Bemidji um, in 2020. Uh, the kids were still able to get into the classroom enough last year to make sure their fish were doing okay and to raise those fish and. We were able to get those fish out and get them stocked into the Clearwater River. And um, at the beginning of this year's project, we were still under some restrictions, and the schools were still doing some hybrid and remote learning. Um, I still haven't been able to go into the classroom, as I typically do over the course of one of these projects. But what I have been able to do is do presentations over Zoom, um, not just here in the Bemidji Trout in the Classroom project, but in several other projects as well. So that's been kind of a, a fun way to stay involved in the, in the project and to keep in contact with people and, and um, to ensure that the kids are getting a, you know, a good educational component um, that we are usually able to provide. So I've been really happy with that. We're um, on track to release our fish in the Clearwater River again from Gene Dillon Elementary School. So uh, shout out to all the folks there, Mr. Wade, uh, Mr. Adams, and Ms. Tisdale. Um, just a great group of teachers. Um, it's just a pleasure to work with those folks. Is that uh, unique to our area, or is Trout in the Classroom something we can find in other school districts in the state? Well, you know, Kevin, recently it's become very popular. Um, for a number of years, I believe 10 or 11 years, um, the Trout in the Classroom program in Bemidji was the only one in the state. Uh, but since then, um, it's become very popular. I think there are over 30 programs now statewide. Um, don't quote me on that. It might be more. So it's it's really, really taken off. Um, the statewide chapter of Trout Unlimited has has really stepped up their support of this program. They've hired some educational coordinators that are, you know, taking care of all the details as far as getting eggs to all the classrooms, getting all the fish disease tested, and ensuring that all the fish can get stocked into public water bodies if possible at the end of the project. So um, it just seems like it's going to continue to grow. And I think that's just great because it truly is a unique program. Um, we didn't have stuff like this when when you and you and I were in school, Kevin. I really wish we did. <laughs> yeah. But it's a really neat hands-on way to, you know, learn a lot about the environment and ecology and kind of build uh, a fostering attitude, uh, attitude of stewardship for for these resources in our next generation of people, which is something we really need to do you know a lot of my uh my guides that i interview over the course of the summer are uh are tip are teachers in the non-fishing season and they might be thinking you know that sounds like something i might want to do how does a teacher or a district uh get involved in that well um you could go directly to the statewide chapter of trout unlimited um they have a really good website where um, you'll readily find information on Trout in the Classroom and how to get involved. Okay. All right. Easy enough. Uh, and one of the other cool things I want to cover before we, we wrap it up, and we've yeah. talked about it before, it's, uh, for you know, for stream trout fishing, 
if you've got disabilities or you have problems walking, it could be very difficult. But on the Clearwater River, we've got a very cool area that makes it real easy for for people of any sort of issues to, to get down there and, and do some fishing. Absolutely. So um, we've had this in the area for a number of years. Uh, it's the Jay Johnson Memorial Trout Fishing Area near Pinewood, Minnesota, on the Clearwater River. Um, and what we've done there is constructed um, a level boardwalk from an accessible parking area that leads to five individual fishing platforms that are stationed along uh, one side of the river in that area and provide access to the stream for um, people with 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 needs for well geez let me let me back that up kevin okay um and we're able to provide access to the river for people with special needs um so they can get out and um enjoy the resources and it's it's a very popular area it gets a lot of use and um so people need to know that that's out there for sure yeah, it's uh, you know it's funny how something can be around a long time and, and people just don't hear about it. So I like to always remember, bring that one up because uh, you know it's not not like it's right there for everybody to see. You got to you got to kind of look for it. That's right, that's right. But um, if pe- folks are looking for that sort of fishing opportunity and that accessibility, it, it's it exists there on the Clearwater River. Well, Tony, one more time, if we uh, no matter where we live in the state of Minnesota, and we want to find out where there's some good stream trout opportunities and maybe some tips. Uh, where, where do we go on the website again? That's the Minnesota DNR homepage. It's www.dnr.state.mn.us. And just look for the fishing tab on the left side of the page and follow that to Trout Fishing in Minnesota. Okay. Anything else you're involved in besides per- trout right now? Well, right now we're we're very busy with our with our spring fish production. Um, we have a, a walleye spawn take operation and a walleye hatchery here in Bemidji, and that's going full blast right now. Uh, we're getting a good run of fish. We're hitting our quotas for for the number of eggs we need to produce, and everything is looking really good despite our kind of drawn out latish kind of spring <laughs> that we're now looking at. Um, so we've got a lot of other spring activities coming up as well. We'll be doing some muscalunge population assessments in the area and then doing a lot of uh, special assessments on our lakes this spring. So it's great to be back in the field. Tony Standera is a fishery specialist out of the Bemidji area office, uh, talking uh, primarily trout today. Tony, it's always great to talk trout with you. I appreciate it very much. Enjoy the spring being out in the field again. You too, Kevin. I really appreciate your time, and it's great talking to everybody. Again, a reminder that in two weeks, we're really going to be diving into fishing. We'll have our Lake of the Week. We'll ask the aquatic biologist on a regular basis, and we are going to have some of the best anglers in the world on our show on a regular basis. In the meantime, don't forget you can check us out on social media, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. And we're also available via podcast at Podcast One on the Pod MN app or wherever you get your podcasts.